You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the latest episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm the founder and strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Yes, I have to say that every single time. Uh, We're lucky enough to be joined this week by Rory Medcalf. Uh, Rory Metcalf is the head of the National Security College at the Australian National University. He's got a diverse and impressive background. Before that, he was a senior strategic analyst with the Office of National Assessments, which is now the Office of National Intelligence in Australia. He's also served as an Australian diplomat with postings in a wide number of places, including India and Japan. Uh, most importantly, Rory has a book out. It came out, uh, I think, I believe in November, but it's called Indo-Pacific Empire, China, America, and the Contest for the World's Pivotal Region. Um, I powered through it this past August, and I really can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, besides being very insightful and a really good perspective on the Indo-Pacific, it's written extremely well. I got through it in a week and really couldn't put it down. So congratulations to Rory on that, and thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about your book. Listeners, now it's time for my bi-weekly request to please... Leave us a review or rate us on whatever streaming platform you're listening to us on. Uh, it's hugely helpful for us if you can do that. Remember to check us out at perchperspectives.com. We've got a twice a week free newsletter. You can also read more about the story of the company and some of the services that we provide. If you want to get in touch, if you want to talk about the podcast or you want to explore what Perch Perspectives can do for you, how you can better mitigate risk and also capitalize on geopolitical opportunities, please don't hesitate to reach out to us, info at perchperspectives.com. We read everything that comes through there. And even if you're just a listener to the podcast, I try and respond to everything. I don't always get to everything, but I really do try. Uh, Other than that, comrades, uh, take care, stay safe. Please wear your masks. If you're an American listener, please go register to vote. I won't tell you who to vote for, but please register and please make sure that your voice is heard. Uh, Be good to each other. Take care of the people you love. and We will see you out there. I would be remiss if I didn't start off asking you um, a question on some quad-related developments in the news just right now. So it's September 1st today. This will publish next week. But in the last couple of days, we've had the news that Shinzo Abe is going to be stepping down from the premiership in Japan eventually. And then you had the U.S. Deputy Deputy Secretary of State uh, saying that there are no institutions like NATO in the Indo-Pacific region and that maybe a, a structure should be formalized. And the quote was, this will only happen if the other countries are as committed as the United States. I, I wonder if he realizes how um, inconsistent the U.S. commitment to some of its multilateral initiatives in the Indo-Pacific has been. But um, I know, like, for instance, in the book, you talk about how Shinzo Abe was one of the driving forces of the Quad in the first place. So um, j- just give me your quick take on those developments and how you understand them in the context of the greater Indo-Pacific. Sure. Well, look, Jacob, fantastic to join you on um on perch perspectives, I uh, I do think that the the recent developments on the quad are um, they're worth noting. Uh, I don't think that they fundamentally change the um, the direction of travel. Uh, yes, uh, Shinzo Abe was uh, a persistent, consistent, uh, dedicated champion of the quad and also, I guess, the the Indo-Pacific web of security partnerships that my book is focused on. But the the real test comes now, and I think on balance that our nations will pass that test, that is that these new partnerships uh, go well beyond the political fragility or the political championing of any individual at this stage. I think the strategic environment 
is such that uh, our bureaucracies, our security establishments in all four countries now get the quad, get its value, and importantly, there's political buy-in on various sides. So I don't think it's a fatal blow to the quad. It may slow momentum, but at the same time, it's going to compel uh, the various partners to really double down on maintaining that momentum. And I think evidence of that comes not only with the um, the recent speculation about the quad formalising into something uh, more um, more substantial, but also the prospect, I think, we'll see of more quad meetings before the end of the year. The prospect, I think, we'll see of the agenda actually broadening to include issues uh, like supply chains, issues like technology, issues like pandemic response. On that second aspect of your question, and that is to do with, um, I guess, speculation about a NATO-like alliance forming out of the quad if the partners are ready and willing, uh, these sorts of th- these sorts of stories are, are often, uh, I guess, uh, played up in the media. And if you read closely the transcript of um, the Deputy Secretary of State's uh, comments, in fact, um, he wasn't saying we're going for a NATO alliance tomorrow. He's actually saying it's absent in Asia and it is a matter of the will of the partner countries. I think all four are ready to move at a fairly steady pace towards a more formal alignment. And if you look at India, for example, India has always been allergic to formal alliances with treaty commitment. So I really don't think that changes the story more. And as we'll get on to later in the uh, discussion, I think, the uh, the border clashes between India and China this year, particularly the brutality of the, the Galwan Valley killings, uh, has really hardened Indian, Indian public opinion in favour of the Quad in ways that I think we couldn't have imagined a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's certainly true. And let's bookmark that because I want to come back to that exact point in just a little bit. But before we do, the listenership is mostly American. And I think a lot of them are are geopolitical nerds. So they've probably heard something about the Indo-Pacific. But for me, my favorite part of the book was sort of the first couple chapters where you lay out the mental map and you talk about the history of the use of that term and where it comes from and what it means going forward. So just at at the most basic level, can you tell us what is the Indo-Pacific and why should a largely American-based listener base um, care about it? That's um, yeah, that's a really important hook, Jacob, because uh, this term, the Indo-Pacific, can mean many things, and it's been variously um, exaggerated in recent years to suggest that somehow um, this is a you know a, a, a plot, if you like, by a small number of, of analysts to put an artificial map on the region that justifies uh, American dominance that somehow contains uh, and excludes China. My book sets out to tell a more complex and layered story of the the maritime region that is centred on Asia, but is not Asia alone. And yes, Indo-Pacific is now a neat shorthand for that. And as we'll come to perhaps later on, it is a term that's used as a basis for strategic uh, objectives by the US and other countries. But there's also an objectivity to the Indo-Pacific that my book tries to disclose. That is, for most of the history of maritime Asia, we've really been looking at a two-ocean region, the Pacific and the Indian Oceans, as one region. And although many of us, perhaps not all, perhaps not your younger listeners, but many of us 
who worked in policy uh, in the late 20th century were used to this idea of the Asia-Pacific, which is still often used. That itself was a kind of artificial template that was uh, imposed in the second half of the 20th century to connect uh, really North America, East Asia and Australasia during the uh, the Cold War and post-Cold War era. So the book, just to sort of summarise that Indo-Pacific definition for you, maybe a little bit more crisply, um, the book emphasises that the, the connectivity and the contestation that we're seeing particularly as China rises and extends its influence and interests uh, is in the maritime space very much a two-ocean system, the Indo-Pacific, and that gives us uh, particularly the, um, the middle powers and the maritime democracies, and I think certainly the United States uh, as well as the middle powers. It gives us a rationale for much greater coalition building to create a context where China has to rise in a multipolar order uh, and is going to have to adjust to the interests of others. Yeah, I, I love the way you talked about the Asia Pacific too. And I actually, I had a question. I don't know if you know the answer to this one because I, I dug a little bit while I was reading your book and couldn't find any answers to this. But I, I don't know what the Chinese, like what the Qing Dynasty, for example, I don't know how they referred to the region. Did they just call it the Pacific? Do you know if they had a specific mental map that that they used, sort of pre nineteen hundreds or pre eighteen hundreds, to conceptualize the Indo Pacific? Did you run across that at all in your research? I um, I look a little bit at the way in which, and, and, and I'll just get, go back first to this idea of mental maps, which I should have explained a little bit more clearly to your reader, um, to your listeners. And that is that, of course, uh, you know, there is no natural uh, map or boundary or designation of a region or a part of the world. And we're often not conscious of it, but for geopolitical purposes, for purposes of prioritising the decisions of states in diplomacy and policy and strategy, throughout history, uh, we have created mental maps. You know, if you go all the way back, uh, Asia is essentially a, um, a mental construct that the ancient uh, Athenians uh, came up with for, every, for everything that lay to the east of Greece. And so it's been kind of... Um, readjusted throughout history to mean many, many different things. Um, you know, the Asia-Pacific, the North Atlantic, South Asia, Southeast Asia, so many of these terms, in fact, when they have political value, began as uh, as mental maps somewhere. And so the Asia-Pacific is another of those. And yes, the Indo-Pacific is, is one of those, but my book argues it has an objective reality um, for, for the strategic challenges of the present day. Going to historical Chinese perspectives, uh, I look particularly at the, the maps that different civilizations used and so many from certainly uh, really from the, uh, the 1500s uh, or the 1600s onwards, so many of the maps uh, imagining the region, not necessarily practical maps, but maps that imagined the region uh, that were used by the Chinese dynasties were also heavily influenced by European maps. Uh, and so the, these were maps that uh, were developed by Europeans partly in response to their own uh, exploration, adventures, discovery, or at least discovering lands that others already occupied, but also their own interplay with, with Asian map making. 
what's striking about the uh, certainly the, the later conceptions of the region in China, 20th century conceptions that I, I would imagine had some bearing on earlier conceptions, is that firstly, there was, of course, that China-centric version of the region. But secondly, uh, in a way, the region was defined as the world and was really looked at in very very clear compartments in, in relation to their, their proximity to China. Uh, so I don't think there was a clear sense of the Pacific or the Indo-Pacific uh, terminologically that defined uh, the region and the world for China. But in terms of mental maps, uh, there was actually that two ocean system from at least the 1500s onwards that was very similar to the two ocean system across which uh, European empires and European colonisation was beginning to extend. And so again, the Indo-Pacific has this strange um, genesis or this strange genealogy going back hundreds of years, even though as a geopolitical term, uh, it's really only a 20th or 21st century invention. Is it fair to say that China's Belt and Road Initiative is the mental map that it's trying to map onto the region? Or is the Belt and Road Initiative mutually exclusive with the objective Indo-Pacific that you try and trace in the book? Or do you think that there's a place for both of those things to coexist? So to wind this back further, um, mental maps are, are really only of value if they inform uh, policy, if they're of use to uh, decision makers in governments, if they help set priorities define uh, where resources should be allocated, partnerships developed, and so forth. Uh, that applies both to the Belt and Road and to the Indo-Pacific. The, um, the critics of the Indo-Pacific who say that's a really strange artificial construct to impose on what is essentially an Asia-centric region, and incidentally some critics would say, well, from an American perspective, doesn't the Pacific matter more than the Indian Ocean and shouldn't we just ignore the Indian Ocean, and we can perhaps come to that later. Um, our response to that is partly to say that, in fact, China, since 2013, has explicitly, as its signature external policy, redefined the region and indeed much of the world as something called the Belt and Road, or in fact, one belt and one road, because uh, in, in Chinese, it's still essentially one belt and one road. That is a very, for many of us, it was a very strange and, uh, I guess, uh, obscure way of describing the region. But as some scholars have pointed out, it literally, it, it literally means, or, 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 or figuratively means, the land and the sea. Uh, the, the Silk Road economic belt on the land and the Maritime Silk Road on the sea. And the Maritime Silk Road, which is essentially uh, the, the route from the coast of China through the South China Sea, across the Indian Ocean, to the Middle East and Africa, and potentially beyond to Europe, or with a branch line into the Pacific. That really is uh, the Indo-Pacific with Chinese characteristics. So, of course, as mental constructs, uh, they in fact overlap. They almost just simply uh, latch on to one uh, or, 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 um, uh, or almost sort of sit on one another. But as geopolitical ambitions, <clears throat> there is a clash. There is uh, not quite a conflict, but there is a, a competition, a tension, because one of the great challenges for really every other country in the world of the Belt and Road is the idea that it is essentially China-centric. Uh, many other countries are essentially reduced to way stations along 
the the Belt and Road. All roads lead to Rome, if if if, if you know what I mean. There is a there is uh, an implied imperial quality to BRI. That is not the case with the Indo-Pacific, where looking at the same geography, the same two ocean footprint, it's embracing multipolarity. It's embracing the equality of other nations, <coughs> large or small, and it's embracing their ability to self-select in coalitions to really manage, if necessary, balance and push back against the um, the attempts at dominance that the Belt and Road captures. So there is a contest of ideas, there is a contest of mental maps, even though the geography uh, they cover is quite similar, at least for the the road, the Maritime Silk Road and the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, I, I want to dive a little bit more into China because in some ways China is the five trillion yuan question, if you will, in the entire region. How it's going to behave is going to affect a lot, not that it's going to dictate the future, but I think sort of China's intentions and the way that it's going to evolve its ambitions is going to affect a lot. And you know, one of the first rules of analysis is put yourself in the other person's shoes. And I can, I can go a lot of the way there with with sort of what I think Chinese strategic decision makers are thinking, not, not justifying it, but you can sort of you can sort of understand the position on Hong Kong. You can even sort of understand the position on Taiwan. It's when you start getting into what's going on in Xinjiang that the whole thing begins to break down and you start to get those more sinister overtones of of similar expansionist powers, um, not just in Europe, but also in, in Asia. I mean, Japan right across the street from China had its own kind of unfortunate course of development in the first half of the 20th century dealing with this sort of exclusive and hegemonic and zero-sum sort of thinking. So when you put yourself in the in the shoes of Chinese strategic decision makers, how do you explain what they want? I mean, I feel like they sort of had a perfect opportunity for themselves here with COVID and with the Trump administration. And instead of capitalizing on it, and instead of trying to be sort of everyone's friend, they're being very heavy handed about it. And it seems like they're they're afraid more than anything else. So what, what do you think about China's trajectory and, and how its ambitions might manifest going forward in the region? Yeah, so look, I think one of the um, one of the lazier um, analytical judgments that used to be around, um, certainly when I worked in the uh, the intelligence community, uh, sort of fifteen years ago, was that China wants a stable and peaceful external environment for its economic development, and that's China's number one priority. Um, but if you look at the if you start unpacking the contradictions that are driving Chinese policy today, you could argue, in fact, uh, and I would argue, and I do in the book, that there is a, a thread. I, don't, I didn't say threat, we'll come to that later, but there is a thread between the um, imperative for absolute control domestically, the control of the Communist Party, and in particular, the control of the current leadership, uh, but, the, but the totalitarianism that we're now seeing in China from what was perhaps a, a, a slightly more um, nuanced authoritarianism some years ago, that is now increasingly at odds with the desire for a stable and peaceful external environment necessary for China's economic development. So there's now a contradiction at the heart of Chinese policy. Uh, the authoritarianism, or indeed the totalitarianism at home, it's not just about control, it's also about asserting Chinese greatness abroad uh, through this hyper-nationalism that we've seen over the past 30 years developing since the, uh, the post-Tiananmen era. And in a sense, uh, demonstrating that control 
demonstrating that greatness is essential to domestic control, essential to the party staying in power. Uh, and that's why there is almost a, um, a pattern between the internal repression, whether it's in, um, whether it's in Tibet, whether it's the, uh, the extreme repression against the Uyghurs, whether it's now in, in Hong Kong, and the external assertiveness. And I guess one of the big questions I have in my book is, can China actually sustain this? Um, we've never seen this kind of dynamic quite occur before, and in particular because there are um, limitations and tensions that will increasingly, I think, affect China over the next 20 years, including obviously the big demographic question. How long can this be sustained? Is, in fact, the current regime making a major power play on the assumption that this is its best window of opportunity, that it is actually acting out of um, insecurity, perhaps even a sense of desperation, while at the same time projecting the image of great confidence to help it achieve its goals. That's probably the best uh, effort I can make at drawing the connection between the internal repression and the external assertiveness. Um, but I'd also note that it didn't have to be like this. I think if you wind back 15 years or so, China did actually have an opportunity to follow a different path. And there's still a scope, which we may come to later on in the conversation, to, to work to find a kind of a, a set of limits, a settling point to China's um, power play before it really does end in uh, an even greater sense of crisis than the world is already experiencing. Yeah, you know, I, I think we should stay on that point actually for a little bit and, and hit it now, which is to say, and I, this sort of gets to another one of the analytical cliches that have always been out there about China, which is that if you just engage with them pragmatically and economically in this global trading order that they're so invested in preserving, they will liberalize or democratize from the inside out and they will be remade in the, in the image of the West. And obviously that never happened and isn't going to happen. But I do wonder if the approach that the United States is spearheading right now against China, particularly in targeting companies like Huawei or like ByteDance, um, multinational companies that, in, that on some level have more in common with other multinational companies than they do with the Chinese Communist Party, and, and in isolating them so intensely, sort of driving them into the waiting arms of the Communist Party because they have nowhere else to go, because that sort of limits them completely. Um, do you think I'm being a little... A little too generous to those companies? Do you think that you know setting hard red lines right now is the point, or is is there a carrot that has to accompany the stick in order to get that desired endpoint and that desired pragmatism in the relationship that you talked about? Look, Jacob, I I come at this as someone who is not, um, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I I sort of can't stand the terminology that's often used to talk about people's positions on China. You're either a hawk or a panda hugger or a dove or something else. You know, and I don't characterize myself as any of these. I'm someone who's actually been more involved previously in engagement with China than I am now, and I am much more interested now in setting limits and in balancing and in protecting national interests because of the choices that China has made. Um, so I put my comments on the companies in that context. Look, I think the test that needs to be applied is a test related to uh, those companies' independence from the control of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's a test that by their own um, acknowledgement and certainly their own implicit acknowledgement and certainly the letter of Chinese law, the, the rule by law that China has, uh, 
know, they are failing or are likely to fail. But let's yeah, yeah, look, it would be good to give that more of a chance. I don't think, however, that uh, trying to, if you like, um, put some limitations on Chinese power long term by targeting these country, these companies as, as not only vulnerable spots, but actually spots where uh, China has been gambling on, on particularly in the case of Huawei, I'd say less so um, in the case of, of ByteDance, but where China has been gambling on building a champion that, that can support its wider national interests. Um, I don't see that as a completely foolish move because I don't think it's going to drive them any more closely into the arms of uh, the Chinese system than they already uh, really quite inevitably would would be. But I do think that the bigger risk here is probably to do with the um, the middle ground of opinion in the, the battle of perceptions and narrative in uh, democracies, in developed countries, and also in, develop, in the developing world. Because uh, what I've just said may seem reasonably obvious to someone working in the security establishment of a Five Eyes country, uh, the US or an ally, it's not at all clear to someone who is a, um, uh, an economic policymaker or a consumer in so many other countries. Uh, and Huawei and ByteDance still have, uh, you know, pretty significant soft power that they can use and, I guess, attraction that they can use because of uh, what their products offer to, uh, to influence opinion in those countries. So we do have to do a much better job of not only explaining policy, but also building partnerships to develop alternatives that will take quite a long time. Let's put China aside for a second and let's let's go on to India. Um, and you've spent some time personally in India. You've got a lot of experience in India. And I thought you were quite bullish on India in the book for, and you know, I am too sort of as when you're projecting out their economic, political, even military potential going forward. Um, but I wonder if what has happened in the last year or so has given you any pause. I mean, we've seen Modi turn from making India to self-reliance quite literally. Um, and, and there seems to be a rising sense in India that India is becoming a stronger, more centralized nation with a more coherent overall identity, but that that is also coming at the expense of a previous uh, attachment to diversity or to secularism or whatever word you want to insert there. Um, are you worried about India since you published the book last year? Do you feel like India is on the right track? Do you feel like um, some of India's allies have a role to play in helping shape India so that we're not talking about India in 20 years the way we're talking about China right now? Yeah, so my favourite line about India, which actually was written by, a, um, I think, a, a British economist about, uh, well, many, many, many years ago, is that um, Joan Robinson, I think, whatever you say about India, the opposite is also true. And I think that holds absolutely true for India today. Yes, of course, um, I'm worried about a number of developments over the past year. I'm worried in particular about the impact that uh, COVID-19 is going to have on uh, Indian, Indian economy in the short to medium term and, of course, on public health on a massive, uh, on a massive scale. Um, I was already concerned, even as writing the book, about the potential for India to undermine its own democracy. And I do, I do put a few caveats in there 
but we've got to weigh all of this against uh, some of the, I guess, long-term objective facts about India. You know, the the miracle, in a sense, that India's managed, even for as long as it has, with a uh, an essentially democratic system in a highly diverse, federated democracy, uh, so culturally diverse, so geographically diverse, uh, over you know the best part of a century, and I think that we're likely to see that model to continue generally, even under Modi. You know that is that is a major accomplishment, and if you were to essentially uh, map that onto any other part of the world, uh, and I think one of my favourite analyses of that uh, that um, George Perkovich wrote many years ago is that if you were essentially to treat the entire American continent, maybe plus Europe, plus the Middle East, as a single federated democracy uh, with that kind of diversity, uh, then it would be indeed a miracle that you would that we, you would hold it together and gradually improve development, living standards, human dignity, national self-confidence. And that is still largely the Indian story combined with that extraordinary youth and dynamism that India has. So a lot of, a lot of obstacles on the road ahead. Uh, we should have no illusions about India. We shouldn't pretend or imagine that India is automatically some kind of uh, fully like-minded ally for the United States or Australia or other developed democracies. But India being India is going to intensely complicate life for China over the next few decades. And I think it's going to be a fundamental roadblock to any kind of Chinese hegemony in the Indo-Pacific. And even though there are elements to India that may not automatically appeal to, uh, to those of us in, in some other countries, a global future that doesn't include a place for India, just as a global future that doesn't include a place for China, is going to be unsustainable. So it's about fitting the pieces of that multipolar puzzle together, finding the right balance. That's really where we've got to go. And my book, being somewhat upbeat about India, really is looking at where India is now as opposed to where India was 20, 25 years ago. And I did spend three years in Delhi as a diplomat at the turn of the century, and I engage frequently still with uh, with India, with Indian thinkers, uh, officials, journalists, business, you know, the whole sort of spectrum of the Indian elite. Uh, I would argue that India is, is so much closer to uh, partnership with countries like America and Australia than it was, uh, that India is more confident and as we've seen this year, uh, that India is going to remain fundamentally mistrustful of China, pragmatic, but mistrustful. Your point about democracy uh, and Indian, I guess, political culture is uh, really a delicate, difficult one that we have to address. Uh, one of the great qualities of India is its diversity, is its culture of tolerance and its inclusion of so many perspectives. I mean, I like to remind people, for example, that um, it's not we're not just talking about Hinduism here or indeed Islam, but, uh, you know, Judaism and Christianity have longer histories in India than they do in most of Europe. Uh, not most of Europe, but Northern Europe. If you think about the fact that, um, you know, in the first century uh, AD uh, and, and from then onwards, you were seeing uh, the, what would now be described as Western cultural influences being accepted in India. Uh, so it's a mosaic. It's a it's a really rich mosaic. 
the Hindu nationalism um, that Modi partly represents, but also has very deep subterranean currents that go well below Modi. Of course, although at one level it's an expression of uh, a kind of um, cultural pride in India, it also has some very dark edges and it's going to be really important that those are managed uh, over, over the next few decades. I still think that the diversity of India, particularly um, the, the many different states, cultures, languages and, and, and real pockets of, um, of tolerance, even in the darkest times, I still think that will hold out. But it will be an India that does have a more confident nationalism than we saw some decades ago. And it will need, uh, I guess, frank and forthright help from its friends on that journey. So, yes, we will, be have, we will have to be careful in liberal democracies to define our entire India relationship through the prism of values, just as, and this is now as an Australian speaking frankly to an American, we're going to have to um, do everything we can to cherish tolerance and liberal democratic values in our own countries. Yeah. First of all, cheers to that. And I've, I've got another question bookmarked for you on that too. But before we leave India to the side, um, it seems to me that one of the darker edges there that you alluded to is the situation in Kashmir. Um, and, and it seems to me when you look at it at an objective basis, there are obviously differences. But when you look at, for instance, how China has dealt with Hong Kong versus how India has dealt with Kashmir, there are some real parallels there. How does a country like the United States or a country like Australia express um, disagreement with how India is going about Kashmir while still maintaining that productive relationship, while still being an ally and still being able to move forward on political and economic ties. Yeah, look, I um, and, and and full disclosure here, I actually spent time in Kashmir many years ago uh, as an election monitor uh, when I was posted as a diplomat in Delhi. Interestingly, um, it's not very widely known, but around 2002, I think it was, the state elections in Kashmir um, the Indian government actually encouraged foreign diplomats to conduct election monitoring in Kashmir to uh, help India uh, demonstrate that these were free and fair elections. So, you know, the Kashmir story has been a, a very rocky one and certainly a very dark one, and certainly India has made a lot of mistakes in, in Kashmir over the years. Uh, and the last 12 months have clearly, or the last 18 months really, have, have seen, I think, a, um, you know, a fundamentally difficult phase because of the, essentially, the, the constitutional change to, um, to, to, to the status of JNK. But I wouldn't go so far as to put it in the same league as, the, uh, as China's treatment of the Uyghurs. And let's, you know, let, 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 let's park the Hong Kong comparison to one side for the moment because that perhaps is the more, um, over time, that will be, I think, the more um, appropriate parallel to study. The, of course, in engaging with India, we have to uh, express views on India's own adherence to its uh, liberal democratic values and traditions uh, that it has or, or claims to have. I do think the situation in, in Kashmir is really more um, more layered than than in Xinjiang. And I think if you look at, for example, the, um, the maintenance of, despite all of the crackdown in recent years, uh, the maintenance of democratic processes over the past 20 to 30 years, the, um, the difficulty with 
genuinely combating the cross-border element to terrorism and militancy in Kashmir, which is something that China has not genuinely had to deal with. I think um, I think in some ways India's had a more difficult situation. But no, I, like you, I would like to see I would like to see that addressed. And I think over the next ten to twenty years, not just in Kashmir but also the northeastern states of India, where there've been separatist movements and where there's been uh, you know episodes of um, repression in uh, central states of India where there have been essentially uh, so-called Naxalite or Maoist rebellions over the years and clearly uh, brutality by the security forces as well. Uh, there are a whole lot of areas where India is going to have to do better over time. Yes, I, I agree with all that. And I, I want to skip ahead a little bit from where I wanted to go because you mentioned the liberal democratic values that we cherish both in the United States and Australia. And obviously here in the United States, we're having plenty of our own problems. We're going to election season. Um, we're having conversations about race that have been long overdue. We haven't quite gotten to conversations about class yet and about how to how to fix things and how to move forward. But you know, hopefully at some point we do. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how Australia is feeling domestically, whether there are any sort of analogous domestic issues that Australia has to work through in order to get to the point where it's behaving in the Indo-Pacific like a good responsible power, if, if there's any concern for you of Australia or any of the other Five Eyes sort of backsliding into the um, the moment of, I would say, self-absorption that the United States is in. Um, I would bookmark that also by saying that you know most Americans, their experience of Australians is they think Australians have funny accents and they watch crappy shows on Netflix like like Pine Gap. My wife just made me sit through that for an entire week and I felt like I ate three, three Big Macs every night when I had to watch an episode. So can you talk to an American audience about some of the domestic issues that Australia is facing or are y'all doing fine? Should we be taking notes from how you guys are managing this transition in the 2020s? I'm really happy to elaborate on, on that, Jacob. And just as an aside, yeah, I think Pine Gap's pretty boring, but the first episode of Secret City is not so bad. So you, you ought to watch that one, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, right. Yeah, look, I would I would say that um, Australia has a number of advantages which we're really only beginning to to recognise and discover. And I think, ironically, there's one one problem we often have in this country, which is probably a kind of almost a lack of national confidence. That's um, used to be called the cultural cringe. Once upon a time, Australia, you know, was seen as or treated as kind of a um, an appendage to the British Empire. Then it was sometimes seen as a, a, a derivative um, America. Uh, but increasingly, I think Australia's, it, you know, it's a multicultural democracy. Uh, it's forging its own path and identity. I actually think that this Indo-Pacific concept uh, that I've been developing and promoting and that my book is partly about is in some ways an authentically Australian way of seeing the region because you have to remember that uh, it's a way of defining our place in the region where the debate about is Australia Asian or is Australia Western becomes immaterial. Australia is literally an Indo-Pacific country. But turning internally to our, um, our societal dynamics, the impacts of COVID-19, the anxieties within our democracy, just as in every other democracy at the moment, Australians do look to the United States at the moment generally, you can't speak for everyone, but I think most Australians look to the United States with a, uh, a lot of worry, a lot of concern. I'm not sure if I pronounced that worry in the correct American way, but you know what I mean. Uh, a lot of concern. 
because there is so much that Australians have uh, admired about America o- over the years, and so much that Australians have not only imported from imported from America culturally and intellectually, but also it's been a two way two way traffic. Some important distinctions are about Australia for your American listeners. I mean, one uh, one important distinction is that Australia is an extraordinarily diverse and multicultural country. Even if a lot of the traditional impression of Australia is it's sort of uh, you know suntanned um, people of Anglo-Saxon heritage, it's actually a country where more than half of the population was either born in another country or has at least one parent born in another country. So Australia is much, much more, in fact, a nation of migrants uh, than the United States is. And this is really uh, a development that, 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 that's accelerated in the past 30 years or so. Secondly, um, Australians have a different attitude to democracy in some ways. Uh, voting is compulsory in Australia. And for the, almost all of us, I mean, there's obviously always a few exceptions, but for the most part, not only do we accept that, but uh, we actually cherish that. And that means that the middle ground in Australian politics is almost always dominant, even when uh, particularly conservative or or somewhat radical governments get into power, as has happened over the years, uh, it almost always ends up veering towards the centre. And there's a um, there's a tendency to really moderate policies for that regard and moderate rhetoric for that regard. And although some people would say there are some elements of Trumpism in some corners of Australian democracy or elements of, uh, I guess, uh, more of a left populism in other areas, for the most part, there is a consensus on the direction the country is taking the way the country is run. And our response to COVID-19, I think, has captured a lot of uh, a, a, a lot of that. You know, Australia is working mostly as uh, an effective federation in response to that. This does a few things for us internationally. It, in fact, does empower Australia to be an active middle power, an active middle player in the Indo-Pacific and to have agency whether or not the United States is with us at every turn. And I think generally our government this year has done a good job of that. And it's one of the reasons why Australia's been quite confident in pushing back against Chinese influence and interference, even though we are going to pay an economic price for that. But the bigger question, of course, is how sustainable is this new Australian worldview? And I think, in fact, that over time it will... um, solidify into an an authentically Australian foreign policy where sometimes we work very closely with the United States in the Indo-Pacific and the world. Sometimes we go our own way. We're not seeking confrontation with China, but we will stand our ground if our interests, values and multicultural identity are put at risk. Yeah, well, something for American listeners to focus on and, and think about, because I, I think what's broken down in the United States more so than anything that has to do with President Trump is just the inability to have conversations across the political aisle with people that disagree with you. And and those conversations just aren't happening. And there's been a breakdown in trust about, about the other side having the best interests of the nation at heart. And I mean, the United States has gone through periods like this before, and I, I still think the United States will come out of it. But unfortunately, I think we're in, in for a bumpy ride. Um, Rory, I have I have a bunch of other questions, but I want to be conscious of your time and of the listeners' time. 
Um, so I'll just have to strong arm you into coming back maybe in, in six months to answering some of these other ones. But before I let you go, um, the curveball question for the episode, I don't, I don't know what the right Australian metaphor for that is. Do, do you have baseball there? Does curveball make sense as a metaphor? I really think it's uh, cricket. And um, I think it's uh, it'd be an obscure bowling term in cricket, such as a googly, but go ahead. Um, who's your Who's the Australian prime minister you most admire in Australia's history and why? Wow. Okay. That is look. That that, that is um, a pretty direct one, and, and it's interesting that um, Australian prime ministers, uh, we, we, when you scratch the surface, like American presidents, you know, they're usually very flawed, and um, very flawed, uh, and occasionally uh, fragile in, in, in individuals. But they can do great things in their time. So I'm not going to give you one. I'll give you a couple. And again, most of these uh, your American listeners won't have heard of. Look, I think one of our first prime ministers, uh, Alfred Deakin, uh, was really quite essential to building Australia, not only as a federation, but putting us on the path to being an independent nation. Among other things, Deakin was the father of the um, the Australian Navy and um, has a fantastic beard to uh, to boot. Um, I can only um, <laughs> I can only dream of grooming a beard like Deakin's. So Deakin was important, even though he had flaws, he had vulnerabilities, and there's some areas of his agenda, you know, the Australia in the early 20th century, that would be politically, uh, I guess, you know, politically distasteful and really uh, wrong for this era, particularly early Australia at that era was, um, I guess, much more wedded to not only the British Empire, but to a sense of, um, I guess, you know, Eurocentrism, uh, sort of racially as well. So, you know, Deacon, but with his limits. Bob Hawke, um, who may be known to your American um, listeners a bit more, an Australian Prime Minister in the 1980s because he was a Labor Prime Minister uh, from the centre-left who built national consensus, particularly on economic reform and pushing Australia to a more independent set of policies within the alliance framework. He was nonetheless a strong supporter of the US alliance during the, the Cold War. And John Howard, uh, who was our longest serving or second longest serving, I should say, Prime Minister, but our, but our longest serving recent Prime Minister um, from 1996 to, uh, to 2007, someone who, in fact, to be honest with your listeners, I was not a supporter of in the early years uh, because I think of the perception that he was not engaging sufficiently with Asia or with Australia's new diversity. But over time, Howard was uh, not only a consensus builder, but a, uh, a, an extraordinarily steady pair of hands in a country that sometimes has, hasn't had them. And really, in a sense, when we look at the problems Australia has today, uh, whether it's economically or strategically, strategically or in other ways, they would have been a whole lot worse if we hadn't had uh, those very steady years of, of government under um, under Howard. But just to close there, Jacob, I, I also uh, generally don't like the, the cult of personality around leaders. Uh, and I would say that one of the really important points to note in Australia is the need for us to sustain and return to a greater degree of consensus building in our national direction. I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. And, and thanks, Rory, for coming on. Listeners, the book is Indo-Pacific Empire, China, America, and the Contest for the World's Pivotal Region. Rory, thanks so much for your time. And uh, hopefully you'll come back on soon. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. 
If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in, and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.